This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars, premium race spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. On today's show, we're going to look back at the Dutch round of World SBK 2021. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie on the show today and uh, Gordo, you've just got back from the Netherlands and uh, it was a real action-packed weekend for us. Oh, it was amazing. It was a, a fantastic weekend at Assen uh, with a bit of everything from the the amazingly we had dry races but we had every kind of weather you can imagine from sunburn to absolute flooding they, they say it was exceptional at Assen which is quite amazing because Assen is uh, not exactly a dry track at the best of times. Um, no, it was a lots of changes in the championship, lots of incident, lots of uh, uh, not surprise results but different results and that's what you want. What, what more do you want from a race weekend? Well, I tell you what, we wanted Gordo was probably a little bit of a closer title fight and uh, no doubt we're going to get to probably the biggest incident of the weekend pretty quickly. But I wanted to start off with a couple of smaller topics from this weekend. Obviously enough, one of the big things this week was we saw that Andrea Locatelli was able to come away with his first podium. Really impressive stuff from the Italian rider, a fifth, a fourth and a third. And uh, well, he was unlucky to come away with only one podium, really. It could have been two, should have been two. Yes, um, I mean, fair enough, the rules are the rules, but yeah, he, he worked his way to two podiums, um, and that's a bit of a step change. He's shown some flashes, but he's not actually been, um, all year, been one of the guys you thought was going to do it on the weekend, but that was very different to us, and they just obviously found the the things that work for him. It's also a track he's been racing at for a very, very long time. He understands the nuances. It's a real rider's track, um, so if they do still have some set up, places to get to to find perfection Assen's the kind of place as long as you've got tyre you can kind of overcome them Jonathan Ray always says that um, and he knows the place really well and he's obviously a mega talented rider uh, it's just making that transition to superbike some riders never do it some riders take a while some riders do it instantly um, he's obviously coming from really small bikes to super sport to superbike um, has now started making a good transition it's round 5 of a possible 13 and he's already on the podium and could have been twice. So there you go. Another one joins the party. Excellent. What did you make of the penalty as well, Gordo? Because I was chatting to a few race stewards from different championships, including their own, and they all said the same thing. They hate to give a penalty like that when there was no material impact, but the rules are the rules, like you said. Yes, and the rules have been brought in to stop people taking advantage. Um, but he did touch the green. You're not allowed to touch the green on the final lap. I do understand it. Um, it's a, it's ultimately a safety measure, um, so you can't really argue with anything that's been brought in to, to help with safety. But in this particular instance, um, where's the harm? People would say, where's the harm? Well, there isn't any harm, but it's just a transgression of the rules, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I feel every sympathy for him. Even Ronaldo said that it was his podium. It, it was Locatelli's podium, um, but he'll take the points as any professional rider will. Um, but yeah, it was a bit harsh, but it's also, you can't argue with the rules. It's it's the rules. Yeah, and I think it was interesting talking to a few people from Ducati where they did say, you know, they wouldn't have appealed the results based on what had happened. But uh, obviously they weren't going to give back the podium either. But moving on from Locatelli, there was also another couple of bikes that were quite competitive this weekend. We saw Tom Sykes really fast and consistent. Michael Vandermark up there inside the top five as well. BMW made a, another step forward that confirmed their potential from Donington. But 
and we've said this before in the past, Gordo, unfortunately just still some small issues just affecting that bike, that team. Yes, um, it does seem to be a feedback thing from what we're, the, the latest information we've got. Is it's just not knowing where the limit is. That seems to be the big problem. Um, and that's why there's so many falls. When the pace goes up, it's where's the limit, where's the limit? Oh, there's there was the limit, not all oh, the limit's coming. And that, in any rider, will tell you is the last thing you want. You want to have a bike which is telling you exactly what's happening. However good, bad or indifferent, however fast it is, you want a bike that's giving you that old word feedback in every possible way. When you've got it, you can then ride to the limits of either you or the bike. But when you don't have it, the you suddenly find the limit the wrong way. And that's what's been happening too often. Obviously enough, with BMW, we saw that this is a home round for Michael Vandermark. He always goes well at Aston. Sykes always goes well at Aston as well. Scene of victories, podiums, polls for Tom. But it was important that on the back of the Navarra test, they made progress. Donington, obviously, they were both able to be on the front row of the grid and finish on the podium. And then now Aston, it's three totally different tracks. And then we go to Navarra next. So you'd expect to see them be able to maintain that momentum. And it's really important as well because, obviously enough, we're still waiting for full confirmation of what BMW's plans are next year, but the contract is up with SMR to be able to to retain their place as the factory team. Yes, uh, it's been a, a up and down for BMW, but they do have a bit of momentum behind them right enough. Um, they need to keep that. Um, if they can do that the next round, there's no reason why they can't at a track that uh, is new for people, but they've been to in some way. Um it's not exactly an advantage, but it's maybe uh, a more of a leveling out for them. Yeah, they they're showing signs. I think the package and certainly the rider lineup, everything's there for those guys. But if I was looking on from um, Germany at this whole thing, I'd be wanting to see the culmination of that into results. When you have rookie riders in the class winning, when you have other people doing one good one good result so far, they need a bit more of what they had at Donington. Um, and it could have been a lot better at Aston, but for a few silly things. And they certainly need to eradicate all the silly little uh, things that have you know, lost sessions or held riders in the pits. Yeah, and uh, obviously, Gordon, we're going to kick straight off into our big topics of the weekend. And I don't think there was a bigger topic, really, for a long time, rather than Garrett Gerloff and Toprak Razgudioglu in race two. Yeah, and again, it's, um, it's one of those things you can argue all day about the incident itself, but... It's a consequence that makes it even more uh, newsworthy and, and topical um, and important because the championship leads, which had become suddenly alive with a complete championship fight, a couple of points in it at Donington, has now shot out to 37. So it's the consequence of what happened is the, the most important thing and the frequency with which it happens with the same rider involved. There's obviously something, judgment, understanding whatever that Garrett is not uh, in control of or not sufficiently in control of. And yesterday we saw his comments eventually um, coming out through his through his team because he didn't come and see the media, unfortunately, to explain the situation to us directly. But we read the, his comments and he was full of contrition um, and apology. Sometimes in the past there hasn't been. He's been trying to find, you know, well, it was this, it was that, it was the next thing. Maybe this is a wake-up call for him now to say, OK, look, I need to sort this out. Gordo, obviously enough, one of the, the big topics about Gerloff is that continuation of all those incidents that we've seen. You look at 
Aragon that clashed with with Jonathan Ray. You look at Estoril with Rinaldi. You look at this weekend with Toprak. You look at the two instants we've had during Super Bowl sessions, whether it was Mizano and Assen. And there's a culmination of all those instants that take place. And it looks like he's a rider constantly under pressure to prove himself, under pressure to, to show what he can do out there. Yes, and I think that might be the issue, is that he's trying to win every session, he's trying to win every corner, he's trying to win the race in the first lap, early laps rather than the, the final laps. Um, and maybe he's, he, he's just misjudging too many situations um, when there's so many other riders around. Um, you've got to credit the guy for his aggression, you need that as a rider, but you also need at this level control. And there's lots and lots of other riders around there that are going to be just as fast as you and on the same bit of asphalt as you. We have to take that into consideration. Um, I don't know about whether that his background in AMA, whether that was the 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 situation every time or not. But ultimately, the there has to be better results of decision making, especially in those early laps. And Gordo, obviously you mentioned AMA there. Whenever we had uh, Gerloff racing in Moto America, it was him against Cameron Bobier, the two world-class talents in Moto America. When you look at his background as well, obviously being brought under the wing by Ben Spees for a long time, when Spees was coming through in AMA, it did effectively come down to Miladin versus Spees. You had to focus just all your attention on one other rival. And I think it's easy for a rider to forget that whenever you're in a world championship, there's a lot more than one Cameron Bobier. Almost everyone on that grid is a world champion or has won world championship races, is the equivalent of a Bobier. Yes. Um, yes, I think that might be uh, part of the situation. Um, maybe he's a very confident rider and a very aggressive rider, but I think maybe he's maybe got too much confidence. And certainly spatial awareness of other people has been the thing that other people is not. Your, your idea or my idea is what his fellow riders are saying is that understanding where other people are going to be um, it's alright making yourself putting your position on track and taking every advantage you can and understood what he was doing when you saw the beginning of that uh, race two in Holland you saw him going from right in the middle to the inside thinking right well there's no one there I'll go there but people are going to get there people are going to arrive there from outside he's not racing in isolation it's one of those situations as well, Gordo, where the Yamaha is a very forgiving bike. And it's very forgiving when you're out on track on your own. You can collect those kind of instants and run a little bit wide. You're able to have take a lot of liberties with that bike compared to some of the other bikes on the grid. But when you're on the run down in towards turn one, when you're in a pack, you don't have that liberty. You've got to be very exact. And each of the instances we've seen this year, whether you think back to Aragon with, with Ray, Estoril with Rinaldi, or this one with Toprak, They've been when we've seen corner entry breaking into deep, like I said earlier, and almost that bike just kicking a little bit. And it seems to catch him out each time. Yes, that seems to be the common denominator in at least two or three of those incidents is ultimately it's breaking and then the back end lifting or leaning while still flat out breaking, then starting to lean and suddenly the back wheel comes up off the ground as it's going to do. It's there does seem to be a commonality uh, in some of the errors that are happening Jonathan uh, Aragon and Rinaldi um, and I think Estoril if my memory serves me right so you know that's something that needs working on and if it if it was the other riders would take him aside and say look don't do this it would be full tank of fuel 
don't take liberties on the first laps. Yeah, and it was interesting talking to a few riders after it because they did all say the same thing. He's got that talent level that you need to be absolutely at the front of the field, whether it's here or racing in MotoGP. But you need to have more respect for your rivals because the problem with it is all of those riders don't want to give him an inch now as well. I was talking to a few about racing with someone like Toprak and they said you can give Toprak to an inch what he needs and he won't take anything more so you can have total respect racing against him but whenever you're racing against someone else that's had those kind of incidents you don't want to give them anything you want to be able just to be very harsh with them and give them a bit of their own medicine at times yes uh, i mean we've i feel this is a little bit of groundhog day because we've had this conversation already this year you know after the first incident then the second one and now the third one um the riders shouldn't be the ones to police it the police should be the ones to police it but most of all the rider himself should be the one to to sort it out because he's doing himself zero favors and he's such a great talent he's a lovely kid everybody seems to like him he's a very likable polite guy it's great to have a top level american here we want him to be one of the top competitors because that's what the championship needs but ultimately he's got to have a look at himself well gordo he's already had I think two long lap penalties in Aragon. Started from pit lane in Mizano. He's now had a ride through penalty. Does he need to sit race one and must? Uh, it's not up to me to do that. I think um, <laughs> penalties are always difficult because, you know, what's the crime? Um, you can look at that as a pure racing incident. Um, most people don't. But. Does he need to sit out, sitting in an entire race? That's that's quite a big punishment when, um, when the consequence was important, but for the championship point side of thing, um, should he? I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't. But I'm not advocating for banning people from racing altogether. I think if you can affect their race result because of actions as a penalty, sure. But what's what's appropriate? I wouldn't want to make that decision and again I don't want to try and uh, negate riders natural aggression and confidence and, and close action but yeah when you get sent off in a game for repeated booking if you get booked and booked and booked and then yellow carded and then carry on and you'll, you'll get sent off you don't need to make some massive aggressive knee high tackle in football to get sent off but if you make three four five fouls in a row you get a yellow card and then you keep going you get a red so maybe there is a red card waiting on him. I don't know. It's, it would be interesting to see what happens, for sure. Well, I, I've sat down and I've chat, chatted to Race Direction about how they come up with a lot of their penalties. And one of the things they do factor into it is where the incident took place and in what position it took place. If you take someone like what we saw in Estoril taking Ronaldo out of a podium spot, that's treated a lot more differently rather than someone for 13th. And if you take out the race leader like Toprak was, that's going to be factored in very differently as well. It is a strange one. It is one of those ones where at the end of the day, like you said, Gordo, there are decisions well above our pay grades, but uh, I think it's definitely something that's going to have to be looked into. And I think it would have gone a long way for Gerloff to have spoken on Sunday as well, rather than it being just the release, then actually be able to see how he feels about it. Because what was interesting after Estoril was that he was very adamant that he hadn't done anything wrong. And I would have been I would have been quite keen to have seen his reaction on Sunday as well. 
Yes, anything that comes to an official press release is always taken with a pinch of salt by everybody. Um, but that's all we got because he didn't come and see us. Now, I don't think he's under any requirement to come and see the media um, at, if he didn't finish in a certain position. However, um, it would have been a very good thing to do to come and find out what was what was going on. Um, going back to the penalties thing, I think everybody should be treated the same. I don't care whether it's somebody in a podium position or somebody in 13th. I don't care about that. I think the rules should be the same for everybody. The, the consequence of the actions means that you can get away with someone if you think, well, there's no consequence to this for someone else particularly. I'll overtake coming through the field from the back row of the grid just as, just as whatever you want to call it, aggressively, over the mark, whatever, um, then you would be the leaders. I just think all the riders should count the same. I think that's the whole point. If people are taking the, the punishment of what the race result's going to be, then that's a conflation between safety rules, which is ultimately what we're talking about, and sporting rules, which should never happen. It should all be safety-based. Safety um, because if you do that, then the, then the racing's just going to be hard and great, but fair. If you start determining that the top riders are more important than the middle or the back marker riders, no, I think that's out for me. If people are thinking that, I think you should think that again. This is safety we're talking about. Well, I'll tell you what, Gordon, we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast. And when we come back after that break, we're going to move on to some of the other topics from the Dutch Round of World SBK. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, we've we talked about Garrett Gurloff and Top Rack Razgari Oglu already, Gordo. But uh, let's talk about the race winner, Jonathan Ray. He was able to pick up three race victories. It's the first time he's done a hat-trick in over a year in World SBK. And uh, this was... Uh, just a dominant performance all the way through. But this was also a weekend where we saw a few changes on the Kawasaki. We saw Pariba make some big changes in terms of the bike setup, but we also saw it where Ray was one of the few riders that was able to make the Super Soft X tyre work during the course of the, the races as well. Yeah, it was uh, quite noticeable how nowadays how much Kawasaki are willing to change Jonathan's bike. And I think that's a horses for courses thing. I think they actually know the bike so well that when they get enough data and feedback, they say, well, if we do this, we can do that. He needs it more nimble. Okay, we'll do this. I think that's a consequence of the, that combined experience and the level they're operating at. Um, you Normally what happens is somebody finds a happy setup that works everywhere and it's a click here and a click there. It's quite noticeable this year that Jonathan's talking about setup changes during the winter they did it through the races, between races. And it shows the, again, how versatile that bike must be for them to be able to use one tyre and a completely new development tyre and one race and then go a different way back maybe to what Johnny's done in the past with usually like stiffer tyres front and rear and, and harder tyres front and rear. Um, but he changed it completely because of a three to four degree change in track temperature and an understanding from warm-up of, of where the, the actual grip was, the, the reduced grip after the rain. So they know everything so well that they, they realised that they had reached a crossover point where they need to go from one setup to another. Um, and that's based on the, the completely different geometry setup, from what Jonathan was saying at least. They never tell you what they've done, obviously, um, from the from uh, the, the previous round. That That's 
amazing that they, they understand things so well they know exactly right if it was three degrees warmer we'd stay with this three four degrees hot, uh, colder we're going to change it that's confidence eh? and that's understanding knowledge everything and I thought it was interesting Gordo that on the other side of the Kawasaki pit box they made the same changes but it was just tougher and it shows the value of that experience that Ray particularly has with that bike as well because we saw that Lowe's wasn't able to make that progress in race two we saw him struggle a little bit in the closing stages especially whereas with Johnny making those same changes he could make it work yes and don't forget uh, Alex had a wee crash early in the weekend um, which might have had a bearing on that as well um, yeah but I mean as Alex will tell you uh, John, Johnny and those guys are just you know, working at a different level. Not 20 levels above, but they've got more experience, they've got more understanding, and Johnny is the difference. Um, so it's 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 apples and apples, but it's I think it's a slightly bigger apple on one side than the other side. You, you can't just put in what people have and, and do the same job as they do. Uh, they've all got different riding styles and so on. So, yeah, it's... It's um it's always going to be difficult for anybody in a team with the best rider of generation etc. It's always going to be the tough one. Um, so everybody isn't going to do quite as well. But at the end of the day, you look at you think if you if you take an isolated in general, Alex season, you think oh it's not been that great. He's had some podiums and stuff, but you think in the second year he would be moving on a lot more. But he's fourth in the championship, so lots of other people are having a worse time than him, including people who have won races this year. So, you know, it's actually not that bad a season for Alex in, in reality. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Lowe's in the next section of the show as well, because obviously news just breaking today that he's re-signed with Kawasaki. But uh, yeah, it is interesting to see the steps that he's made this year, because he is closer to Ray than we've seen a lot of teammates in the past. But uh, Jonathan just keeps improving as well. Like one of the big factors we've seen over the last two years is obviously enough, whenever he was teammates to Tom Sykes, Tom was known as Mr. Superpole, still is. But Jonathan Ray's the best qualifier in the world now. Yeah. I mean five from five. And he had to have two goes out to acid because he thought he'd been pinged by a yellow and he eventually was. But just to try and go for it, he he used to not care at all about Superpole. He just genuinely didn't care. Um now he also wants this to put in super poles. He understands the psychological value of being the fastest guy there. It does count for some riders, maybe not him, but it might get in the other guy's head a bit more. And it's a good way of really realising what the performance envelope is. How fast can I go in this thing? When you've got mega confidence, like he's got, you want to find out yourself. So, oh, there is actually 0.4 of a second with a qualifier than 0.2. I thought there might only be 0.2. What can I fight? What can I learn from that? What can we feed that back into for setup, etc.? So, no, he's 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 a machine in in qualifying now, and he really wasn't before. And it's actually quite recently, even when he joined Kawasaki and was winning championships, he wasn't that bothered or even that good at Super Bowl. But now it seems that he's just getting. It's another thing he's getting better at. It's slightly depressing if you're one of his rivals, really. But it's it is incredible to watch. We are watching doing. On the NSR 500 in this championship, you know, we're we're watching that level of of repetitive competition at the at winning level. It's you know we we might not see this again for a long time. Yeah, thirty two poles now for Jonathan, and when you think that on the Honda he only had four, 
So it's 28 since he joined Kawasaki. And uh, I think Troy Bayless is the next one on the list for him. Sorry, Troy Corser is the next one on the list for him. I think Troy had 42, 43 well, points. Uh, 42, 43, something like that. Yeah. So you're going to... And then Tom with 50. Tom with 50. So you're going to see that obviously there's a fair bit of work to do for Jonathan to get himself to the top of that statistical chart. But uh, you're not ruling it out now at this stage either, the way that he's able to do it. And you see, you see that complete package comes to the fore on such a regular basis that... That's where it's been interesting as well, Gordo, to see, obviously, the MotoGP rumours, Petronas, Yamaha, that that story sort of came out of nowhere. But uh, I think for Jonathan, he seems to have calmed down on that pretty much straight away. He's put some cold water on that. And that looks like something that's just a bit of paper talk. But uh, certainly, I think you could understand for Ray where when Toprak's been linked with those seats, Gerloff's been linked with those seats, you can imagine why someone close to Jonathan might well just be nudging those kind of stories out into the press a little bit. Yeah, and there's got to be a part of Jonathan that thinks, you know what, I could do this. Marquez is the big dog in MotoGP and has been for a while, the transcendent rider. Well, he's not quite where what he was. He's obviously had a lot of trouble. And look at what happened when he wasn't in the championship. Now, if you were Jonathan Ray with that much success in Superbike and, and the ability to learn anything and, and adapt and cope and stuff, you would imagine that the move to MotoGP, which is very different, it's it's a move sideways as well as a move up. Jonathan wouldn't be going across to MotoGP, he would be going up to MotoGP. So there's the question mark for him. But it's also, because the way nature is, the, the, the nature of racing is now, it's also a big jump sideways. MotoGP is very different even though they're running 1,000cc four-strokes. It's a different thing, different tyres, different everything. So, but he, there's a part of him that must be sitting inside there, eating away at himself, going, yeah, go, just one year. Do it. You know, let, let's do it. Um, and it would be incredible to see. And and let's face it, what more has he got to prove in Superbike? You know, he, he, he's only beating his own records now. Well, he's got the pole record. Oh, yeah, to chase, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've already talked about. Yes, this. I know, but he's it, it, and you know what? He's actually talking about maybe it will happen. He was joking about it, but you can see that he's thinking. You know, if if I concentrate on this, I might be able to do it. It's it's too many. It's too far. Yes, too far. But we we said that before about everybody after Fogarty. Everybody said, "Oh, never happen again." Blah blah blah. No, and look at what's happened. It's not just happened. He's doubled some of Foggy's stuff. It's amazing. It's astonishing. With Three races in a weekend does change the complexion of things. Toprak's already achieved more at the same age as what Johnny had achieved. And if he wants to stay on, he can do an awful lot. But it is interesting with Ray that I think whenever you talk to Johnny at a race meeting and he's got his his race face on, he's always very complimentary about, you know, MotoGP and he would have liked to have gone, but more than happy to have stayed where he is. I think if you were to get him at the end of the season party, whenever he's a little bit drunk, I think he'd give you a very different answer. And there has to be that bit of, I wouldn't say bitterness, but there has to that has to be somewhere inside him because a writer as talented as him, as successful as him, that's rewrote the history books, he's going to get his 200 podium probably next time out in Most. Someone that's achieved that much, it has to eat away at you a little bit whenever you don't get the opportunity to have really tested yourself against the best. And it's always interesting whenever you look at where someone like Foggy is remembered. Foggy's a six times world champion. But when you're coming up and you're thinking about your greatest British riders of all time, Foggy's not fa- factoring that high into that list. And Johnny's going to fall into something potentially fairly similar as well. 
Uh, I'll make two points there. The one thing that Foggy said when I interviewed him after he retired was his biggest regret, and it, it it's carried on. It wasn't just at that time. It's It's been a factor of what he said in years since, is that he really regretted never having even just one good go at, at Grand Prix racing. And that's fine. The other thing is you've got to understand that part of the many things that are driving Jonathan Ray is not just his natural competitiveness, is the fact that he does feel that he was passed over um, by previous manufacturer, but he was passed over to go to MotoGP and he feels that he deserved the chance. Is that not a massive motivating factor for him to become, continually to become the record breaker in, in World Superbike? To prove to himself, if no one else, he could have made it in MotoGP and should have been given a chance by absolutely blowing the doors off World Superbike year after year after year after year. He's wanting to make sure he's not that guy that's ever forgotten in the record books and that people in a generation from now will go, actually, that guy was definitely good enough to have gone to MotoGP and probably would have done something. And I don't see any reason why Johnny, even now, even he's he's not a young rider anymore, I don't see that it, what would success be for Johnny? If he could do a Bayless and go there and get one race win, that would be an amazing achievement. So that's what I mean about when I say there's a little thing niggling away at Jonathan. If Jonathan was with half the other manufacturers in the grid, he would have had many more MotoGP chances than he's had, even as a one-off. I mean, remember, Bayless rode for three seasons of MotoGP, two for Ducati, one very good one, one not so good one, and then one horrible one with a Honda he couldn't get on, came back to Superbike, cleaned up again there a couple of times. But when they pulled him back to Grand Prix, he won that race with a Superbike crew who don't even work in MotoGP all the time um, as a Superbike rider. He wasn't even a MotoGP rider anymore and won the, the, at Valencia in a race that lots of people wanted to win. So one race win would be a success for Jonathan Ray or any other Superbike rider that's gone over there. Spee- Spees has only got one. MotoGP Spies one. had won at Aston, yep. There you go. So and people, but he's a MotoGP winner and a World Superbike champion. So that's why there's always going to be this little thing. I know we're always talking here, Steve, but it's great to talk about um, Johnny and MotoGP because it's just a never-ending story. It's a gives and gives and gives. Can I say one thing though, Gordo? Honda didn't make a didn't make the wrong decision by not bringing him across as well, though, because they ended up with Mark Marquez and Danny Pedrosa in there as their two factory riders. That's not a bad partnership to have had going at that stage. So, you know, for Johnny, there was that loyalty to Honda. But I think Johnny's biggest fault is he's too loyal. You see that now with Kawasaki. He doesn't want to leave Kawasaki. He doesn't. He didn't want to leave Honda. He stayed with Honda pretty much all the way through from his junior days all the way through until he left for Kawasaki. Ray likes to have the same people around him. He likes to have that familiarity. Whereas there's other riders that, are more willing just to just to buck the tread and just go wherever the opportunity presents. We've seen someone like Vandermark, obviously a world champion in super sports. He's on to his third different manufacturer in what six years. You know, some riders are willing to to move themselves around. And Johnny was a rider that always wants to to stay in that same place. He likes that environment, that family atmosphere that you can get by staying in the same place. And that can be a strength. That's at the end of the day why he's been able to achieve so much with Kawasaki, but it can also be a bit of a weakness. Yeah, it was. It was something that it actually 
slightly coloured my thought about the guy because he was obviously mega talented, but he was obviously to everybody outside of the situation, he wasn't ever going to get to MotoGP with Honda. Um, and he was never really going to get to be world champion because unfortunately Tankata were kind of half in and half out with the support from Honda and it would change year by year and there was always a new bike promise that never turned up. You can understand completely why Johnny wanted to stay but you're exactly right in what you say about Johnny's character his nature. He needs to be surrounded by people that love him um, and he loves him right back um, as a person and as a, as a here's your present, thanks for all the support, here are your big trophies. Now he did that a lot with Tenkata, more than virtually any Honda rider in the, the, the semi-modern era, never mind the modern era. Um, but it, so it took a lot for him to leave because of that familial feeling he had with the team. And, and Tenkata are literally a, fa- a family team. Um, as are KRT, funny enough, isn't it? We've got a, uh, the, fam- the, the family Tenkata that run that, that team for Honda, ran it for that time. Um, and you've got the the Roda brothers and their cousin, who's the other guy that's the, the, the part of the team. So it is literally a family team. Johnny places all the, a big value on all these things, and it's I think it can only be a strength. But he needs it. He needs that love. He needs it. It's part of his nature. It's interesting, Gordo. I never actually thought of the, the Ronald and Garrett, Tinkade, and then the Roda brothers situation, that parallel, until you just mentioned it there. So that's a, that's a good point. I want to just ask you, just before we take our next ad break, just about Scott Redding as well, because we saw Redding able to get onto the podium in both feature-length feature races and looked back on form this weekend in Aston. It was interesting with Redding, though, that he said, we didn't change anything from Donington, but it feels totally different. And that's the that's the Ducati in a nutshell. Yes, um, and you look at Rinaldi, Mizano, fantastic. Um, and then again, struggling at, at Assen. Um, and relatively speaking, Scott, uh, you know, the bigger guys were the more successful guys at, at this round. Um, and Rinaldi was, was toiling accepting the, the small race, the short race. And that, Rinaldi's saying he's out with the same things as Reading. Um, what track to track, it doesn't work. Why? Well, I'm astonished that no one in Ducati has put the finger on it and said, this is our problem. This is the problem with the bike. And But it is, the, it is a problem. What if you want to win the World Championship? It's not a problem if you want to win half the races. It's an, it's an awesome piece of kit, that Ducati. But it has to work at this level week to week. Maybe in BSB or, or, or other series, it can win every week. But when you have the particular... Uh, situation you've got on in, in World Superbike, you need a bike that works every week because the Kawasaki works every week, even when it's not an ideal track for it, it still works but the Ducati can be almost nowhere and that is a big worry and the, how many times have been the houses around the houses with the setup for that thing so, new bike new bike mate maybe they, need, they, they, maybe they have identified it but they know they can't do anything about it and maybe they need a new bike that is the story in World SBK so often because there are so much that you're limited to be able to change. You can strengthen a chassis, you can't change the chassis. And uh, certainly for some manufacturers, that's been their downfall in recent years. Maybe Ducati do need to make some big changes. And Gordo, before we take our ad break, I want to ask you about some of the big changes that are being rumoured within the paddock. Obviously, the rider market's starting to take shape. We saw the news that uh, Garrett Gurloff confirmed to stay at Yamaha for next season. And we saw the news as well. Obviously, Top Rack's going to stay there. That was confirmed a few weeks ago. But Ducati's an interesting one because there have been murmurings that they're not happy with the situation. They want to make a change. 
they want to obviously save money. They want to be able to look at it and say, why are we paying so much money for an inability to win championships? And Scott Redding looks like he could potentially be that bit of a fall guy for them. We've heard Redding's gone around. He's talked to BMW and Honda were two manufacturers I heard he'd, or at least his representatives had been talking to. But it's always interesting that whenever a manufacturer comes in and says, we want you to take a pay cut, that riders, managers then go out trying to basically get any offer on the table to then go back and say, hang on a second, this is what we're being offered by someone else, you know, keep paying us where he is. Because Scott's not going to want to leave Ducati for anywhere else, thinking that they're going to be more competitive than where the Ducati is. Um, Yes, but competitive is what? I think competitive in a post-Jonathan era, when you haven't quite got that metronome of wins in the the green garage, um, is a different thing. So... As I've probably alluded to before, I think there's a lot of people, whether they're admitting it to themselves or the outside world, are working towards a, a, a the era when Jonathan's decided to stop. Um, and riding on a Ducati in that era would be a blooming good bet to win the championship from Ducati's point of view and Reading's point of view. Um, Ducati have got a reputation, rightly or wrongly, of being pretty hard on the riders. You know, they look at the WOZO situation in MotoGP. There's been a few of those over the years. Um are they, who are they going to put on their bike with their setup and exactly what they've got now, which is obviously operating at a very high level with very, very good people and a major manufacturer with tremendous MotoGP for them behind it all? The, what, who are they going to put on that bike that's going to suddenly come in and go, oh yeah, I'll just beat John every week? Well, it's not about beating Johnny, but they do have an Italian rider that won two Grand Prix for them that's out of contract in MotoGP that outperformed Scott Redding when they were teammates. So if Ducati ended up saying that they were putting Petrucci on the bike, it certainly gives them an awful lot of leverage to drive down Scott Redding's wages. That's why uh, Redding's managers, they're trying to find leverage to drive the wage up. Ducati's got a big stick to be able to drive it down. Yes, but it's a big unknown stick. This is World Superbike, not MotoGP. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think Patrick would be a brilliant fit because this is where he came from. It would be fantastic to have him in there as well. Um, yeah, and I understand all the money side of things, but if, if people are... If I was in uh, in that factory, I would be looking at how do we win the World Superbike Championship and forgetting to do with money because how much money they spend to not win it over the last few years. They, they are World Superbike. Kawasaki is second in virtually every one of the statistical uh, rankings now and the whole between the manufacturers and the team that's above them and all of those things is Ducati. They own that street and yet they're not they're not living there anymore. They're not winning anymore. Um, that has If I was them, I'd be worrying about winning the World Championship here. And if Petrucci does it or Reading or a new bike or whatever, that to me is what has to happen next. Gordo, where does Jonathan Ray sit in the manufacturer's standings in terms of stats? He must be fairly high up. Yeah, he must. Yeah, if he took only his results, he's yeah. That's it. I might have a look at that actually. That's one thing I haven't done. Probably not doing too bad. Well, he's done what ninety odd of those. Uh, I think ninety odd now of those uh, wins. Yeah, he has over ninety uh, of his career wins for for Kawasaki. Who's the next best? Yeah, I think Ka- ninety three now. Yeah. I think it is. So. You know, look at look at what is uh, look at the other Kawasaki riders. Where do they factor in? Is a factor of what you know, a fifth less than him, a tenth less than him. How many races did Scott Russell win? You know, to to be a champion there. So 
yeah, it's amazing. It's a one-man winning machine. And obviously, as you've alluded to earlier, three races a weekend for for recently in World Superbike really helps. You know, it really helps when you when you get uh, to build up your stats. And funnily enough, Jonathan was against it all at that time. He he knew that taking three races a weekend was going to mess up the historical stats. Because whatever he says, I think he is quite keenly aware of all that stuff. Oh yeah, it's always funny whenever you ask Johnny any question about stats and it's always like, oh, I had no idea about that. And you're there like, yeah, but you mentioned it to me previously, Johnny. So you clearly <laughs> did know about it. But it's interesting, I find, with uh, Formula One, they're not using the sprint race in terms of an individual race start as well. I quite like that. I don't like the fact that we have our three race starts and our three race wins. A Super Bowl race shouldn't count for the same as a feature length race statistically in my eyes, but once it starts like that, it has to stay like that. But did um do they score actual championship points for that sort of race? They or do. Is that, they do three, three, two, one. Not a lot. So of it's points. not as much. I mean, we're half points more or less, more or less half points in the in the the sprint, and fewer riders get them. So, well, I mean, a race is a race. If you're going to call it a race and it's a short race, and remember, some races have had to be taken over. 10 laps or, or a few laps because of weather, a crash, track condition, whatever, um, and counted. We used to do half points for those kind of races, you know. But I think if you have a race now, that's it. If it's a starts as a long race, you get it. Um, I, I like it. I love all the, the, the excitement of the 10 lap race and stuff. It hasn't turned it into 10 rider fights over the line, which I think was maybe half the idea. It hasn't turned out that way, which is unfortunate. But, um, yeah, we've started, as you say, we're starting so we'll finish with the races. The main thing is they don't they don't count as pole positions. It really would because it's a super Tiso super pole race we call a sprint race, a ten lapper on Sunday morning. Well, that doesn't count for a pole position, even though it does change the 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 starting grid for the first few. I'm glad of that because that really would mess with the stats, wouldn't it? You know, qualifying should be qualifying. Not a I'm still, I'm still very much of the opinion, though. I'd love it if the weekend was structured: Super Pole, Super Pole race, and then the two races yeah, on yeah. A Sunday. Yeah, if we're going to do three races that way, why not? The uh, the Super Pole race does work well. We're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast, and when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about some breaking news within the paddock. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And Gordo, just as we record this, the news was announced that Alex Lowe's is going to re-sign with Kawasaki. We've already mentioned it briefly earlier on in the show, but I have to say, I think he's made a big step forward this year. He's closer to Jonathan Ray than we've seen most teammates in terms of their outright potential, their speed. Obviously, Jonathan, with his consistency, he's got that edge once we get into race conditions. But I think track to track this season, Lowe's has done a pretty good job. Yes, um, it's all about, and remember, he had a very disturbed uh, first year last year, testing a lot, but in, racing is, is different from testing, um, and they changed the bike in the winter, so he's had a slightly different bike to learn when he hadn't maybe quite learned the, the full secrets of the previous one, and then they changed the, the 500 rev limit on them at the start of the season. Well, that's more of a thing for him to deal with than, than Jonathan, for example. 
So you take all those things into consideration. He's he's obviously had a good start to the season because championship points tables don't lie. We can have any idea, impression, or opinion, but look at the table. How's he done? Well, he's the fourth best superbike rider this year, uh, behind, you know, obviously guys that are really, really good riders. Uh, he's, he's ahead of some people you think that were ahead of him. If you, if you look at it anecdotally and PR image wise and, and how many column inches are generated in websites and newspapers, you know, Alex is, is, is ahead of most of the guys who get more, you know, headlines and, and discussion about. So there's the proof. Yeah, and I have to say, Gordo, as well, like obviously he's had three non scores through this season, three crashes, one in Estoril that you have to. You have to put the blame on the rider for that. He had that Super Bowl penalty and then was trying to override to try and come back through the field. One of a few riders that had that penalty on that day. That obviously changed the rules that we have to give the riders two Q tires in the Super Bowl sessions going forward. The crash in Donington, where you're in wet conditions, you're trying to win your home round. That's one of those crashes where, a bit like when when we saw earlier in the season on, on the podcast, we were chatting about some of Alex Rins's crashes. And his Portimao crash, I always excused because he's trying to win a Grand Prix. I think sometimes whenever you're in a position to win a race, you know, sometimes you're going to take that extra bit of a liberty. That's what happened with Lowe's and Donington. And then the crash in Aston, he had good potential all weekend in Aston to come away with three top six finishes. We didn't see the crash, but uh, you're down to turn five. Typically, it's losing the front end. And uh, that's one of those ones he'd want to have back. But I think other than that, there hasn't been too many mistakes through the course of the season no you don't but you don't need to look far if you were a rider coach coming in from outside to, to just immediately topic one for discussion on the first day was crashing a little bit too much it's just something that has to be eradicated if you want to make that next step because you have to understand why you fell off what happened not do it understand why and then not do it it kind of goes back to the get off thing it seems to be the same kind of incident we're having all the time you know back end kicks up whatever what you have to learn from those things and there has to be a, 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 a Alex has to find out why he does of these crashes and stop it happening easy said from my armchair at home but that's what has to happen with Alex if you can eradicate those look at where he would be in the championship quite interesting as well because obviously we sat down with with Alex in Aston as myself and David and one of the questions David asked him was about MotoGP do you feel that you deserve like deserve an opportunity to race in MotoGP and Alex very flatly just said no I haven't done enough in World Superbikes to warrant that opportunity and I think like you said there Gordo about looking at yourself and the mistakes you can make and the improvements you can make I would say that a lot of riders do tend to look through rose tinted glasses at what what uh, what's been their situation, and I think he can be a little bit too he can be a little bit too black and white at times, even for himself. And I think that that's where working with Kawasaki's been quite good for him because they love a rider that just wants to go and test and just lap after lap after lap. Because with someone like Johnny, with all the experience Johnny has, with the talent he has he can adapt himself to pretty much anything. And I think that's where it can be quite good on the other side of the box. They had Leon Haslam in the past, a rider that goes out and does as many miles as anyone during testing. And I think Lowe's is then an extension of that as well. And it gives them that good balance within the team. That's got to be one of the key reasons why they were very keen to keep the same lineup. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
And I agree with what you say about Alex. He's, he's almost too critical of himself sometimes. Um, but he, he's also completely capable of riding at winning pace without these incidents happening because look at his record at the eight hour. What's the definition of endurance racing? What's the first thing you do in an endurance race? Don't fall off. So look at how many eight hours he's won. He, what little endurance race they've done. He's, look, his record's amazing. Um, if you can bring that small degree of... Uh, Whatever it is that, that that doesn't affect his endurance results to World Superbike, a lot better position. Um, but you know, I agree. I also completely agree with what you say about the testing thing. Alex just wants to to ride. He loves it. He loves the the whole world of racing and being on his bike as much as he does winning and everything else. This is very uh, important thing for a manufacturer. They've re-signed him five races in. They're not doing that because they don't like what they see. They do like what they see, and I think they're also looking at it. But and especially the the team itself think that they can get Alex to the next step, the next stage. When you see what Alex said in his release, you know, even in his, his public release about it all, he wants to take that next step, and he thinks he could do it with Kawasaki. I think that symbiotic growth thing is there for them. And I think Gordo as well, it'd be quite interesting to see what he's like in a full normal season. Obviously, last year we had COVID. This year, we're now getting to the stage where we're getting week on, week in, where we've got around. I'm quite keen to see what he's like by the time we get to the end of the season. And I'm quite keen as well. Obviously, he's picked up a lot of injuries through the course this year. Be interesting to see how he does after he's able to get himself fully fit as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's um, crashes don't help your confidence and they bash you about a bit. Um, I think he's basically got to, uh, as you say, look at him at the end of the year. But the people that are in control of his situation like him enough to have signed him already. I think that's the significance. But for him, I think he wants to find that improvement, not for next year, he wants to find that improvement for this year. And so do they. Um, and I think that, you know, if it works out well, Alex should be able to notch up more wins. He should certainly be able to notch up a bucket full of podiums before the end of the year. He's certainly got the pace. We're going to get the chance to hear from Alex as well now at the end of this show. But Gordo, before we go, obviously, we've got a couple of weeks off before Most. What's your plan until uh, the Czech Republic? Uh, work. Work some more. Um, I am going up north on the annual uh, Old Racers plus me as oversized mascot uh, annual ride which is still on, thankfully. Um, that's going to happen just before we go to Most. I'm actually going to be a wee bit late getting to Most because this was all arranged and sorted and uh, non-cancellable. So I'll be arriving in Most later than I would normally do normally because the, what, that race wasn't there, was it, when we, we did all the planning? And then all of a sudden they threw it in there. So I'm going riding in the north of Scotland with all the old axe murderers from uh, BSB and, and TT and, and GPs and goodness knows what, and I'll just be bumbling along. Uh, enjoy myself, Goro. You, you don't you don't do it often, but do your name drops. Uh, I can't say. No, I'm not allowed to say. No, it'll be it'll be. I, I'll I'll uh, I, I won't tell all the names, but uh, no, it's just the old Scottish racer mob. It's all the guys that were winning British championships and TTs in the day. So uh, and and McPherson. It's basically me and Ian McPherson used to go riding together in in Argyllshire in the north of Scotland, and then he said, "Why don't we get all the old racers to come along as well?" So the first year they turned up on whatever they had in the garage and before you know it they're all on adventure bikes with 
cases and you know mobile phone connectivity and and sat nav and all that they were loving it they were they, a lot of them didn't even ride on the road hadn't ridden the road for years and i was like oh, this is magic so you go to these beautiful roads in god's own country which is obviously scotland and and we have a great time stay in little places they all meet up and tell war stories and i sit in the corner and listen to them and laugh my head off um but basically simo uh mcpherson's going uh, i think neil's coming up uh I'm not organising it this year, particularly, so I don't know some of the names. Uh, Duffus Morrison. Um, I think Howard Selby's coming this year as well. He doesn't come every year because he runs his own business and that. Uh, I think uh, Howard Cross should be there as well. Um, I don't think Jamie Whittam's coming up. I don't think he's he's able to just because of the Moss Clash thing. Yeah, what's actually in Checo, I think. So that's why he's not going to ah, be there. Ah, that's right. Okay, so he can't be there. Um, and of course, he's got to get back home again before he goes home from the north of Scotland. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a fun ride. I've actually written a magazine story about it years ago, um, uh, about it all. And, and it's just fun. It's 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 amazing to... These guys are just totally regular human beings, except for their ability to ride a motorbike. So, but the, the life experiences are hysterical. You know, the stories they've told, driving himself around Europe and, and all the hijinks he used to get up with is great. And they're characters, they're real characters. Um, and it's just a privilege for me to hang, hang around with them, basically on bikes and going around. Um, but it was a run that Ian McPherson and I started off doing years ago and then a couple of his mates. And then he made a kind of reunion thing. They used to do a big reunion at Christmas every year and that fell by the wayside. And this was a way to kind of have a, a mini reunion. Um, so it's pretty cool it, it, it's great and as long as the weather's good <laughs> if the weather's terrible you know it's it's a slight problem but if the weather's but good there's, it's there's no bad weather at the minute Gordon there's no bad at weather the at the no 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 not in the not up here but that's what worries me by the time we get there it might have decided to show back up again no, it's, the be- it's the best motorcycle related couple of days of the year it's great fun yeah, I do always love hearing the stories from it afterwards, Gordo. So I'm looking forward to catching you for a coffee once we get to Most. And uh, before we leave, we're going to get the opportunity to hear from Alex Lowe's recently re-signed with Kawasaki and World SBKs. Obviously, getting yourself set up right in the bike is a key thing. Um, on these rental street session interviews, we always tend to ask the riders about what they want in terms of their riding position on the bike. Like, what's the big things that you're searching for on your World SBK bike? Yeah, you need to obviously feel comfortable on the bike because you're racing for a long time but you need to be obviously use, making sure you can use all parts of your body your legs your your, your, your torso your, you want to be maximising anyone that's ever rode really well on the bike you look at them and you think that, that looks like the bike's made for them so that takes a little bit of doing when you change from different bikes different manufacturers because the seating position and all that sort of thing is a little bit different but normally when you get something you're happy with you sort of you sort of stick with that then and try to take that take that through with you have you had to change your riding position as things you know you've switched bikes uh bikes develop bikes change yeah. uh, electronics becomes a, a, an issue have you had to change your riding position because of this are you like in gp what we've seen is the handlebars are moving out up yeah. and out yeah uh are, are you are you changing your handlebars and how much difference and does it also take getting used to when you do have to change yeah it does take a bit of getting used to but but yeah, from the, for example, the bikes I was riding in the past, with the Yamaha, for example, it's a bit softer, but easier to ride, so you can you can sort of hang off the bike a bit more, and you don't have to work the bike hard. The Kawasaki is a little bit more difficult to ride, so in terms of stability of the bike, it's stable, but it's, it's heavier, so when you're changing direction, you need a little bit more leverage, so I'd say that it's more of a, 
old school style on the Yamaha and more of an aggressive sort of opened out style on the Kawasaki. I think you can see that when you look at people, even Jonathan, for example, riding the bike. He's not riding the bike like you know, leaning off as much as, as maybe some of the other guys. I think that's a lot down to the, the, the different characteristics of the bike. But it's about, um, I think as you're in, in our job, you see different riders, you might have little injuries or different things that happen that also shape your, your position on the bike. So it actually does, you're, you're always looking at what you can improve. A good thing for me when I was working with Andrew Pitt at Yamaha the last couple of the years, he worked really hard on that. And even though I'd been on the, the bike previously, when he joined as the crew chief, we made some good steps from a position. Some things I didn't really think of with my foot pegs and, and, and how to be an ex-rider like he was. He was able to give me some some constructive advice and we got the we got it. So I, was work, I felt like I was using my body a, a lot better, even though the bike hadn't changed at that point. So now I'm quite aware of being ready to adapt if I feel like I can make a positive change. Obviously enough, Alan, in the past you've done the Suzuki 8 hours, you were yeah. teamed up with Katz on the Yamaha and a lot of it was geared towards him for most of that time. And then yeah. suddenly whenever it was yourself and Mikey had to do the race together, Yamaha changed the bike position, Vandermark was able to find an awful lot of time yeah. and then it turns out that Nakasuga was faster with that setup as well. So it shows that everyone's able to find a compromise that can work. Yeah, but, but the Japanese are ideal. not... Japanese culture, Japanese engineers, well, they're not, they're not quick to make a compromise. They're a little bit steady. So you might want to, whereas uh, this is just uh, what I've found, my experience working with them is that they might want to change half a mil or a mil where you need to go five really handlebars to make a difference. So when we was forced to do it because Katz got injured, we made a big change and then he tried it and it was like a, a pleasant surprise, which can happen sometimes in, in racing. But yeah, I always felt sorry for Marky because I felt like the, the bike was quite tight for me and he's another foot taller than me probably. <laughs> so he always did struggle. But then obviously 2018, I think it was, we raced together was great because it was comfier for me and it was... So we went from Katz's position to Michael's position and I, I was somewhere in the middle. So both was okay for me, but definitely was a bit comfier because, you know, when you're on the bike for an hour, you don't want to be in a cramped position. So, yeah, it's obviously important, but then you go and do Suzuka and you ride something completely different and you still go fast. It just reminds you not to focus on it too much because in the end, it's, uh, yeah, stuff like that really plays with your mind because you're still able to go fast, feel good and then you say, well, sure, it doesn't make much difference. And you complain with your World Superbike team that you're riding all the time and you want to make small tweaks. So it's a funny old game, isn't it? Well, that brings us to a close, Gordo, on this week's Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal. Thanks for joining us on the show as usual. No problem, mate. Pleasure as always. Until next time in the Paddock Pass podcast, big thank you from myself, Steve English, Gordon Ritchie, and all of the team here. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.